With Karen DeVoy's Walton, there's no shortage of topics that the municipal voice could begin to cover. A longtime New Haven staff member who started during the DeStefano administration, she serves as the executive director of the Housing Authority. In 2020, Governor Lamont appointed her to the State Board of Education, where she is now the chairperson. Despite these positions, she has also run some difficult campaigns for New Haven Mayor and State Treasurer. She joins us today on the Municipal Voice to discuss these topics and more. We'd like to thank our sponsors at Gateway and Housatonic Community Colleges. The Municipal Voice is the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities podcast in collaboration with WNHH LP 103.5 FM. I'm your host, Matt Ford. As always, be sure to give us a like and let us know what you're thinking in the comments. CCM's Municipal Voice podcast continues to present a key forum on important state local issues. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect the consensus views of CCM or member municipal leaders. Karen, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, so we've got quite a bit to cover today, so let's get right into it. You are currently the executive director of Elm City Communities, uh, the, El, uh, the housing authority of New Haven. Right now, New Haven has much of the state, as much of the state is, is in a curious spot in terms of housing. We're adding more, but it never seems to be enough. What, in your opinion, is the state of housing in the Elm City right now? Yeah, you're so right that we're we're adding more, but it never seems enough. You know, I think we're battling first um, decades and decades of underproduction on the housing front. Mm -hmm. And so across the state, we have not been building. And, and it's actually a national issue where the production of new units has really significantly lagged mm -hmm. um, what our population demands show. So we're feeling that very acutely. And then I think we're definitely feeling that the impact of lots of people wanting to call New Haven home. Um, some of that is COVID related. Some of it is, you know, is beyond that. But um, we, for a lot of reasons, have become an attractive place for people mm -hmm. to want to be. So more and more folks are coming here. Um, the other big impact on the housing market is that the rising cost of housing has not kept pace with folks' income growth, mm -hmm. right? And so um, it's much more expensive to um, whether you're trying to buy or rent. And our wages and income has not kept pace with that, again, for decades and decades. So, yes, a lot of, of housing is being built in the market. I think what we have to make sure is that we're building at all price points mm -hmm. um, and that we are creating um, the right landscape. Some of that might be zoning reforms and things like that that need to happen mm -hmm. so that we can actually build to the scale that we need to build um, and not just at the highest end market rate. Yeah. Um, but build across all income levels. But as you said, a lot of the kind of housing that's going up right now is uh, market rate. Is there a figure where you can say like, that's enough, we don't need any more of that? I, I, well, I think there's a, I think there's a figure that we, that we can say about sort of units that we need uh, mm -hmm. uh, coming, coming online. Um, to say that we're at a point of that's enough on market rate, you mm -hmm. know, we, we probably aren't at, at that point yet. But what's skewing the market so is that we're we seem to be building so much at the really high price point. Um, you know, things that are that are one bedrooms that are at twenty five hundred, three thousand dollar a month rent. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when, when we need to be seeing things, you know, all the data says that the greatest need in our community is for folks who are um compared to the sort of average median income in our area are more making more like 50% of that, 30% of that. So that is certainly more units, but it's also, we have to push for more subsidy when you talk about the really low income families. And that's probably yeah. mostly a federal and state conversation about how we get more assistance in while we're trying to um, build the economics that get people into, into better jobs that pay better wages and, and um, can begin to close that gap between wage and, and housing costs. 
with the affordable housing, um, is there ever truly enough of affordable housing for New Haven? You know, I think if we think about affordable um, in the sense that none of our families should be paying more than 30% of their income, um, you know, maybe 35% of their income toward their, their housing costs, um, then, then that's um, a price point we should be looking at across the spectrum. Um, so that families then have the ability to afford um, the other things that that families need. For some, it's childcare. For some, it's education costs. Um, you know, and, and a full life requires people having some disposable income too to play, to do to do fun things. So, um, so we absolutely need to keep our eye on that um, and ensure that we've got affordable housing uh, across the board. But mm -hmm. you know, to specifically to what people think about affordable for the lowest income families, we absolutely we have a crisis in this community. We have a crisis in this state that um, we have tens of thousands of families who cannot afford um, afford to live in in, uh, mm -hmm. in our beautiful city and um, are here and struggling. And so that means that they're sacrificing in other things. Um, and it means might mean they're on the brink of eviction, and it means that they are unable to provide the stability that their kids need to do well in school, and it disrupts their employment. And so um, it is a crisis, yeah. and we need to double down um, on it locally and as a state, uh, absolutely. And obviously, um, affordable housing helps out the families in need of the affordable housing, but how does affordable housing benefit the community as a whole? Well, really vibrant communities, um, and this is not just my opinion, but right, folks that look at this across the country, vibrant communities are those where we have real diversity um, um, within communities around income, um, around uh, race and, and, and other demographic factors, and that the most vibrant communities are those that really best represent sort of that, that diversity. Um, and so that requires that we have housing at various price points um, in, in order for us to really have that vibrancy. Secondly, though, affordable housing is actually an economic driver in communities. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of studies that have shown the impact both of building more affordable housing and the jobs it creates and the economic benefit to communities during that time of construction, mm -hmm. but the longer term impact as well, the longer term jobs that are associated with the, the new developments and the longer term economic impact of when you can free folks from putting all their money into into rent, then those mm -hmm. dollars cycle in your economy in, in other ways. And we've heard that discussion, uh, you know, on a, a lot of things as we think about the U.S. economy more globally and what's going to move us away from this place of recession. It's getting people back to the place where they can spend their money in the in the market. Right. Yeah. And so affordable housing also helps in that way, because if every single one of my dollars is not going to just trying to keep the roof over my head and my lights on, then I actually get to maybe go to the store and buy something, um, you know, or, or go out to eat. And, and those things obviously stimulate other growth in the economy. Now, I know at the Housing Authority, you don't just deal with affordable housing. Um, you also do housing choice vouchers, tax credit programs. What do resident, New Haven residents need and what do they expect from and want from their housing authority? Well, at the very fundamental, they, they want that assistance that's going to allow them to live in really quality um, housing units in places of their choice um, at an affordable price point. And so, you know, what we're doing with our redevelopment is Im significantly improving the quality of the housing that's offered. Um, we have been um, tearing down and rebuilding throughout our portfolio so that families have 
housing that doesn't stand out in the community as, oh, that's where the poor people live. Mm. But it, it's quality. It's something that I would be uh, happy to, to raise my family in um, and, and happy to recommend to other people. Yeah. So we certainly do that piece. Um, but but how people need to have choice. They, sh- they shouldn't be limited to only having to live in one of one of the developments that is run mm-hmm. by a housing authority. And that's the power of the voucher program or the Section 8 program. So families expecting there uh, that what they expect from us there, I think, is that they get um, eligible and qualified for their voucher, get that voucher in hand and get some help being able to find quality housing in mm-hmm. our community or beyond our community, because yeah. that's what a voucher allows. So there, I think we've got as a city a, a focus on making sure that the units that are available for people to rent mm. are really are quality units, and that's a partnership with the city. Um, and I think city housing policy needs to be focused on ensuring that what's out there in the rental market is quality. Mm. Um, but it shouldn't just be in the city, right? A family might want to live in Brantford, and a voucher allows them to do that if they can find a unit in, in Brantford. So I think as a as a community, we uh, have an obligation to make sure that those opportunities exist beyond our, our, our city limits. But also we really see our role as helping families break out of a cycle of poverty. Mm-hmm. And so they also expect from us a number of services that can help them. Um, because I would venture to guess that for any of us, getting ahead has been more than just having a safe place to live. Mm-hmm. It's been that, and it's also been the mentorship and the connection and the access resource and education and employment programs and and just a friendly face and encouragement and motivation. And so, you know, our team also provides that through our self-sufficiency programming and social service programming. And I think think our families expect that from us too. Yeah, a lot of good work going on there. I know I'm resident of New Haven and I've seen uh, some of that, the housing, public housing change over the years from, you know, that really drab, awful brick blocks into now like lovely townhomes and, and stuff. And it looks really great. Um, one thing that's kind of unique in the area for New Haven is that we have a lot of short-term uh, residents, all the college kids, Yale, you know, people coming in and out. With a transitory population, what vision do you have of New Haven for the New Havener? Um, how, how do you make New Haven for the folks that want to make New Haven their permanent residence? Yeah, you know, I just had a conversation the other day with somebody who was talking about the fact that the the, the uh, Yale University, um, the center of our city, is over enrolling um, beyond the number of housing units that they have, uh, mm. dorm dorm units that they have, and that they're you know requiring a number of students to to live off campus. And they were asking me my thought about that and the impact on the housing market. And it definitely is putting pressure on on the housing market. Um, in terms of, you know, who landlords are renting to mm-hmm. in, in an already limited supply. Um, but while students are living in, their, in the community, I want them to be a part of the community. If they're going mm-hmm. to be uh, taking up a unit, then become a full part of our community and, and become engaged. Um, but my hope for overall for the, for the city is that we will continue to be uh, a city that, um, that welcomes newcomers. I think that's part of the DNA of New Haven. Um, that will be a place where folks can come and and, and can advance and and grow um, and and see um, New Haven as a place where they will want to be rooted and raise their family. I I, I want to see us as a place with a growing middle class. I think that requires us ensuring that we uh, address our issues around public safety. I think it requires us as a city addressing our issues around the public education system, um, because those are probably the two key things that people think about when they think about maybe moving from that expensive downtown apartment that they're renting and, and looking for the next thing in their life. Like, let me, let me buy something. Let me, mm. let me establish roots. I think they think very much about 
what, you know, what they can get for their money and, and how expensive it's going to be and what their taxes are going to pay for. Yes. But I think a lot of that decision is rooted in, am I going to feel safe? Um, am I going to be able to put my kids in the public schools? Um, and, and am I going to be able to create a sense of community? And, and that's what I think New Haven is, is poised to really tackle in some big issues right now. And it will be a key to our continued growth. I think now moving on, having you put on one of your other hats, um, okay. you were recently appointed to the statewide board of education um, on another one of the WNHH's shows, uh, Love Babs. You talked about uh, equity and excellence being the mission for Connecticut schools. Um, this is a difficult top topic for some people, but our schools statewide are not equitable. It, at least it seems that way. How do we work towards that? Oh, I wish that that wasn't a difficult topic. I wish that we all entered um, that conversation with the sense that every one of our learners should get what that learner needs in order to be successful. And isn't that, I mean, that is essentially what equity is, um, that we ensure that we are getting the right resource access opportunity um, that meets that, that individual child's need. And mm. so um, I think it, it requires uh, tough discussions around um, school funding and, and school finance in this state and that connects to property tax and absolutely. But I think fundamentally what, what I'm um, happy about being in that chair and able to lead as this moment is we're developing our next five-year plan for the state department of education um, and for public education broadly across the state is I think we're at a point where our next plan will still talk about equity and still talk about mm -hmm. excellence. It will center uh, the ideas that we want students to be educated in classrooms where they have an opportunity to have an exchange of ideas and learn with kids of all kinds of different backgrounds so that they'll be prepared for the diverse world they're going out into. Um, I think equity for me means that they will be exposed to teachers um, in classrooms all across our state, teachers that represent the great diversity of our, of our state and the world they'll go out into. So yes, I want New Haven kids, um, a predominantly student of color um, population. I want them to have great teacher diversity, but I also want that in the suburban town of Brantford. I want I want kids growing up there to also be exposed to teachers of different um, racial and ethnic backgrounds and, and different demographics, because I think that enriches their ability to go out into the world. I want all our kids to be exposed to um, to a curriculum that is um, that is tested and, and that we know produces the right kinds of results that these skilled educators can then deliver and a curriculum that represents the real cultural diversity, a culturally relevant curriculum. I don't want us to shy away in this time of people not knowing what critical race theory is and throwing it around and, and, and wanting to sanitize school libraries and, and ban books. I want us to actually um, develop in our young people critical thinking um, skills, develop in our young people a sense of, of the world beyond what they may have, have known um, prior and, and a sense of their place in that world. And that requires critical thought and critical examination of the good parts of our history and the challenging parts of our history. Um, so, I, you know, I, I want that. Um, in in what we're in what we're building, um, and then you know, I, I, I at my heart, I am I'm trained as a clinical psychologist. Um, everything I do in our housing communities and in education is about building whole people. And yeah. so, you know, in our public schools, we also have to be addressing the social emotional needs that I think people are very attuned to coming through a COVID pandemic. Yeah. But those those needs are have always been. Or to, to, to think about that for our educators and everyone interacting with our young people and to think about how we're supporting the social emotional development of our of our students 
So that's sort of what we're leaning in on at the state board level um, and yeah. trying to be set policy and be supportive of local boards of ed in moving mm-hmm. toward that. You are listening to the Municipal Voice on WNHH 103.5 FM. Um, you mentioned, you know, uh, right now the pandemic, obviously we're still coming out of it. Uh, it's been particularly crushing on public school. Uh, school testing has been down. And, and some, you mentioned some of the banning books, the, the trust in schools has been kind of on the decline. How do we rebuild confidence in our schools from the student parent point of view? Yeah, you know, um, it's it's so disheartening because um, lots of what was seen during the pandemic was an un unprecedented amount of collaboration between school and family as as everybody had to pivot in this way in school and community and and folks that jumped in to try to help public school and public education from all sectors creating learning hubs and and you know just just so many ways and so um, what I hope, you know, and I think about the pandemic, we think so much about about things that went wrong and got disrupted. Mm-hmm. I also want to think about what happened, what came together, what what did we learn during the pandemic that we can carry forward? And I would hope that the way that community wrapped itself away around public schools, even mm-hmm. socially distanced, right, to be supportive, to, to say we're all in this together, that's a spirit we have to figure out how to bring forward yeah. Um, even though we're, you know, mostly back in person um, every every day in schools. So I think if we can spend some time pulling apart the lessons of what it meant to connect more closely schools and families, schools and community, if yeah. we can think about now, even though we're in person, how to how to continue that um, sort of collaboration. Um, I think that's going to be a start of yeah. of what is is a is a long process and and resist some of that sort of. Um, national trend that we're seeing to sort of pit folks against each other and demonize um, yeah. one group or another. All that cooperation during the crisis, and we want it to continue long after it's all over, definitely. On the flip side of, of this is uh, teachers around the country are start, are leaving the position, feeling undervalued in a lot of places. Um, Connecticut's pay is a little bit higher than a lot of other states, but so is our cost of living. Um, how do we attract teachers to Connecticut? Oh, um, it's, you know, we think about, again, with the pandemic and all the things we talked about and realized were so essential. And we valued our grocery store folks and we valued our public school teachers and we valued our truck drivers. And um, and we've got to make that more than just words. Right. Mm-hmm. It's got to be that value has got to translate into um, our culture, into our um, reimbursement and salary structure and our work conditions. Um, and we, we absolutely need to do that. And so focusing on, on teachers, mm-hmm. um, this has been, you know, and, and the pandemic certainly um, accelerated what was happening. But we were foreseeing this this shortage of teachers and experiencing this shortage of, of teachers well before the pandemic. Um, uh, one of the things my, my, my husband works in, in um, human resources in mm-hmm. public school education. And this is something he's been working on for, for over a decade around needing to diversify and recruit minority teachers, but addressing the shortage areas and the the the, the places where we knew we were gonna to have too few teachers. So mm-hmm. number of things were, were in place and, and really were able to be accelerated because of the infusion of some new dollars. So I'm, I'm excited that in this state, we enhanced um, reciprocity. So mm-hmm. there are additional states now where if you were certified, um, almost all up and down the East Coast now, 
Um, and if you're graduating from a from a HBCU in in Virginia, mm-hmm. um, it's 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 so much easier to get certified now because we're recognizing the certification from these other states mm-hmm. as um, as being reciprocal to Connecticut. So that's that's helpful. We're also growing our own. Um, we have to think long term on this, and we have to. You know, I, I'm always struck that in, if you go in a third grade classroom and you ask kids like, "What do they want to be?" You'll get a lot of hands that will say, "I want to be a teacher." Yeah. Fast forward a few years, but by my middle school, you're not getting that anymore. Um, and so we need to we need to stoke that that was alive um, in our little ones when they were in elementary school. And I think you know the the, the State Department is leading on some great um, teacher pipeline things that are starting mm-hmm. in middle school and high school, starting to to really support. Um, young people who have an idea they might want to be an educator, getting them some support all through high school, getting them into college track and being able to support that way. I think that's going to be a part of our long term. We're doing mm-hmm. a great loan um, refinance program right now where if you're a public school teacher and you're teaching in the um, urban districts, mm-hmm. um, you have an opportunity to, to refinance some of your your um, your loans, your your student loans. And you couple that with what the Biden administration is is doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we've got some opportunities to add some some incentives, um, financial incentives, while we're working on the teacher pay. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can't back away from needing to address at the state level some of the things that would need to be addressed there around educational funding, mm-hmm. so that the money going into districts can increase teacher pay. Um, so we might we need to take a look at teacher pension and how we yeah. can make some changes there that add an incentive. Um, right now, teachers work a long time before they can pull down. It's it's like over 37 years before they pull down their full pension. Mm. And it's tough work. And we, we should look at whether that's the right the right um, years of service and, and right uh, investment strategy on, on the pension. So I think there are a number of things we need to be thinking about to, to um, ensure that the little kids um, that are starting in, in pre-K right now are going to go into classrooms um, all through their K-12 education mm-hmm. um, with certified teachers um, and, um, and and fully staffed classrooms. So this kind of brings us to our final topic for today. Currently, our state struggles with seeing people of color in leadership positions um, from local to state politics. Our representatives are overwhelmingly white. As someone who holds a s- certain positions of power in local and state government, how do you think we can get more individuals of color into public service? Oh, just like there's a pipeline we're talking about for educators, I think we need to build that pipeline um, as well um, for our for our elected officials and our and our public officials in that way. Um, and so, you know, I love some of the things that CCM has been um, engaged in um, in in hosting um, uh, campaign school type events that mm-hmm. are specifically targeted people of color to introduce because you have to. You have to be able to see yourself in something um, to take that next step. And I think things like that, um, mentorship programs, mm-hmm. um, and I think we have to work because our our, our, our elective um, uh, system, electoral system in Connecticut is still very much dominated by two political parties. Um, I think the political parties also need to do that sort of work about looking at how are they identifying new talent and bringing people mm-hmm. into the process and into the pipeline so that people are are on the radar um, and and get tapped and, and particularly it's been it's been um, noted for women that women have to get tapped mm-hmm. um, men are much more likely and that's across across um, all races and genders men are much uh, races and um, and ethnicities men are much more likely to raise their hand and throw themselves in for, for elected office women are much more likely to run when somebody has said to them hey, 
I see you. Mm-hmm. I see you in this. So we have to do some of that tapping of and inviting people in um, to, to think about this as an opportunity. I say go to the places where people are already leading. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you go to your to your school and you see who, who the, the, the the class moms and dads. Um, you see who's who's involved in in organizing the after school things. You see who's leading and volunteering in some of those things. I, those are those are your natural leaders mm-hmm. that we should be thinking about. Hey, you know what? Those leadership skills, the voice you have, the constituency you're representing. Like you would be a great alder. Mm-hmm. You would be a great state representative, right? You would be great on your school board. Um, we, I think we have to in, do more of sort of looking at that and helping people make the connections and then inviting them and pulling them into it. Uh, you mentioned before uh, the campaign school at Yale. For the past two years, I know we at CCM have coordinated with them doing a virtual training session called Representation Matters, uh, where we seek to open doors for people in communities of color to, if they're interested in running to do so, uh, kind of give them the know-how, the, the basics of how to run for office sort of thing. Um, you've run hard-fought races. What motivates you to run? Uh, just a passion for the the people that I've been that I've been serving, um, and a desire to see change on 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 a number of different fronts um, has will always keep me connected to public service, whether mm-hmm. it is um, it, doing the kind of work I'm doing now or or as a as a candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, we need, you know, and I, my career has been focused on fighting for folks who have been marginalized in, in many number of ways, um, economically marginalized, uh, marginalized by by issues of race um, and um, and ethnicity, um, marginalized on on um, able bodied disability um, mm-hmm. spectrum, and um, I think we we uh, you know we need to have folks who are um, setting public policy who are connected to the issues, connected to people, and who have a track record of having been able to make change. And, you know, early in my career, I I transitioned from being a direct service provider to getting into Mm -hmm. policy work because it was hard to, and and my work was in, was clinical work. And I was, I was helping folks rebuild their lives after really difficult um, traumatic experiences. And I wanted to move from fixing broken, broken families, broken Mm -hmm. lives, they're trying to create communities where people thrive um, and setting the kind of policy that allows that to happen. That's what drives me. Um, other folks might have something else that drives them. But I think when you find that passion and you see that your voice is needed because the folks currently there aren't moving in the direction that that makes sense or haven't been effective or people aren't following, right? You're only a leader if someone's following you. Yeah. If people aren't following um, and, and you see that and you know that you have the passion and you have the ideas and, and some track record of having moved something big or small, I think you should think about throwing your hat in um, into or, 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 you know, start on a board or commission where you don't have to run for anything, but you can raise your hand and get selected by a mayor or a first select person to serve on some local committee or commission or board. Like start there and see, yeah. what, it, see what it's like, because it can be intimidating. And I think it's a way in and a way to get started. And maybe the bug will bite you and you'll say, hey, I want to keep going and, and have my name on the ballot. We, we talk about how, you know, it's still pretty tough to get into. But do you feel like there are more doors open in 2022 than maybe there were in 2002 or even 2012? You know, I think one of the things that I've seen shift tremendously in the time span that you're referencing there 
has been this broader notion that we need a more representative um, democracy and that um, the issues you know, during the pandemic, where it was just so clear, the economic disparities and the health disparities and how COVID impacted certain communities differently, got people really thinking about racial disparities and whose voices were heard and who was setting policy. On top of that, then we had the racial reckoning across this country mm-hmm. with the, the police-involved murders of of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and, and on and on and on, right? Mm-hmm. And you had the country, you had people across the country take, and, and internationally taking to the streets, declaring, right? Black Lives Matter, yeah. racial equity. We need to lead from a place of equity. And so I do think that that has shifted um, folks' um, thought about sort of who is in power, um, what decisions are being made, what does it mean to apply a racial equity frame and who's best positioned to be in the seats of power to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there's something different. Now, at the same time, it's a slow pace of change, yeah. right? My, my, my emails all end with my favorite Martin Luther King quote, which says, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's long and it, it does bend with good people pushing on it. Um, it does. So the pace is slow, but I do think we've seen some really seismic shifts in people's awareness of issues of racial inequity mm-hmm. um, and and connection to the fact that that means we need to diversify who's on boards, who's in corporate governance, mm-hmm. who's in elected office, who are our policymakers. And we really need to make it look more like the great diversity of our country, mm-hmm. of our state and of our beautiful city, New Haven. So it sounds like you think like there's been a shift in perception of it, but there needs to be more work on the actually implementing those new ideas. I think so. I, I mean, yeah. I think, you know, as, as you mentioned, our, our government remains predominantly white, um, white, white um, folks running for office have had a hundreds of year head start and building mm-hmm. that network and that in that pipeline. And that doesn't change overnight. Yeah. Um, and um, and deep seated for, for even the most liberal minded, um, thoughtful folks on equity, we still have grown up in a community that has mm. instilled um, prejudices and biases in deeply in us that are that that are the sort of default mm-hmm. that we have to continue to check ourselves around when they rear up. So it's continual work. And there's there's continued continues to be a, a certain thought about sort of who is who are leaders mm-hmm. um, and and that causes people to look in a certain direction um, and it's continual work to say, wait a minute, yeah. look over here. There are others. Have you tapped this? Right. Um, the pathway may not be the typical pathway. Yeah. Um, and and that's good. And that's exciting to think about. But it does take some time. It takes some work and it takes folks not not you know willing to stay in it and not give up yeah. um, to, to make that happen. And it's not going to be easy, but we got to keep trying. Absolutely. Um, so in your most recent race, uh, you had the endorsement of the Working Families Party. Um, how much did that mean to you? Oh, that was huge. That was huge. Um, they came out for me early, even before the Democratic Convention and, and mm-hmm. got behind me. And I tell you why it was so meaningful. Um, and I had I had two two and two um, party type endorsements that were important to me, the Working Families Party. And I got the Young Democrats um, endorsement. Mm-hmm. And I said to people that was so important because the Working Families Party endorsement was a stamp on my campaign that said, Karen is the one who has been working 
throughout her career and has the platform moving forward that has centered working families. Mm-hmm. She's the one who's been working to try to create opportunity and greater access and improve living conditions and, and broaden opportunities for families who are just hardworking families in our community. And that meant a ton to me. And then the young Democrats, that was mm-hmm. like, hey, she's the future. Like we see that she sees us and recognizes and um, and is is trying to build something that's going to be here um, for for um, those of us coming up to benefit from and, and thrive. So those were very meaningful to me. And just quick question. Do you see yourself running again in the future? I have no idea. I can tell you that very honestly, Matt. Um, and that's a bit of what what politics is. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you what I know I'll be doing. It's something that has me um, in a role where I will be fighting to create opportunity for folks that that have been shut out for so long, that are uh, you know the last to be thought of, um, that have carried the burden um, for too long. So lower income families, families of color. Um, families living with disabilities, um, families on the LGBTQ spectrum. I mean, I'm going to be fighting for those families um, to try to continue to move this democracy to the ideal of what, you know, the, the, the it is supposed to be. Um, and that I'll be doing. Whether it involves another race, who knows? Because so much of that, you know, you learn in campaign school, it's about being prepared for something that you can't even foresee may align in a certain way at a certain time. And and if I could move things forward from a point of elected office, I might. Um, But, but if not know that I'll be fighting here in New Haven for the fighting the good fight for the good people. (laughs) Sounds good to me. And we always like to end on a positive note and talk about the future. How do you feel about the future of Connecticut and New Haven? Do you have an optimistic view for New Haven in terms of housing, education, representation, all of the above? I fight really hard to keep an optimistic viewpoint on things because otherwise it would be really, really hard. You know, I, I, um, I'm, I shared with you earlier that I'm, I'm coming into this conversation with you just having left the funeral of a young person, yeah. um, a young man that my, my husband, my husband coaches um, boys basketball at Wilbercross High School, go governors, a young man that my husband coached, a young man that my boy, my two sons grew up with. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it would be so easy to come out of, uh, out of that moment, um, just defeated, yeah. um, that an, another promising, amazing life was lost to gun violence in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, I choose faith and I choose optimism and I choose to look toward what can we do, um, to, to make a difference. And so I am optimistic because I believe in young people. And I believe in the way that young people are showing up and the way that young people are challenging beliefs that um, that my generation didn't didn't believe. And that keeps me optimistic. I'm optimistic because I do think people are reckoning with these issues of equity in a way that earlier in my career, um, it was rare to hear um, in the places that I'm hearing now. Um, I have I have optimism because I think people are are I think there's a lot to be optimistic about in this um, small, still blue um, still progressive um, state and very progressive city um, to want to try different things, um, try things that in other places people would never dare to um, in that spirit of being a place, a haven, a haven for, for other people. And so that keeps me optimistic. Um, and I'm optimistic because every day on this side is another opportunity to try to get it right, right? And to try to do something. And, and so, yes, I am optimistic. Karen, thanks so much for speaking with us today. We really appreciate it. 
Thank you, Matt. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for um, for CCM more broadly for shining a light on this issue of, of representation and uh, creating that opportunity. And I'm happy to keep working with you on it. We'd like to thank our guest, Karen Bois walton I'd like to thank our sponsors, Gateway Community College and Housatonic Community College. Learn more at gatewayct.edu and housatonic.edu. Municipal Voice is a co-production by CCM and WNHH 103.5 FM. Kevin Maloney is our executive producer. Christopher Gilson is our producer. Harry Draws is on the boards. And I'm Matt Ford, your host. Be sure to check out our Facebook page and give us a like. And watch out for our CCM chat series on our YouTube page. CCM's annual convention returns Tuesday, November 1st at the Mohegan Sun Convention Center. This year's convention will be capped off by Connecticut's final 2022 gubernatorial debate. Learn more at ccm-ct.org.